title of my sermon today is The Worst Sermon Ever. And it just happened to have been preached by Jesus. So we're going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount today. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, and if you have your Bibles, iPads, whatever it may be, you can turn to chapter 5. So we're going to look at three different things, mostly at the Beatitudes though, the preface to the Sermon on the Mount. So we've got three things we're going to look at. Uh, first of all, is the worst sermon ever, and uh, this is going to be the worst sermon ever because this clicker is not working. <laughs> anyway, maybe they can do this. Worst sermon ever, the key to a better understanding of the sermon, and then the difference that the key makes, the difference that the key makes. So you're probably wondering, why would, Jesus, why would Tripp say that Jesus' sermon is the worst sermon ever? I know lightning bolts from heaven, everybody beware, right? Um, well, it has nothing to do with what Jesus preached. In fact, this is a sermon of kingdom ethics. This is probably the greatest ethical and moral sermon that's ever been preached, unlike any in any religion that the world has ever known. There's a beautiful picture of kingdom living that Jesus gives us today. He takes all the Old Testament standards of ethics, and he intensifies them, and he, he actually magnifies them. He says, you have heard it said that if you, are, uh, if you murder someone, that you're liable of judgment. But I say to you, if you harbor anger in your heart towards your brother, you've already murdered him in your heart. Jesus says, you've heard it said that adultery is wrong, that you're liable of judgment. I say to you, if you harbor lust deep within your heart, you've already committed adultery. He goes on to say, you've heard it said that you can retaliate an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who brings evil. Let him slap you upon the cheek and sue you in a court of law. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Give to the poor, but do not sound a trumpet. Pray with your whole heart to your Father in your prayer closet. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Be good stewards over all that I've given, for where your heart is, there your treasure will be. And do not be anxious. Be so filled with God that all anxieties just wash away. Read it when you get home. Three chapters, a beautiful sermon, ethical living, but be careful when you read it. Because chances are you're going to look at that picture of kingdom living and you're going to discover how far you fall short of those ethics. At least I do. Virginia Owens, uh, teacher, Christian, literary professor on the uh, university level, once assigned an essay to her class. She said, I want you to read the Sermon on the Mount and write an essay on it. These were post-Christian, post-modern, post-enlightenment students. Many had never heard of the Sermon on the Mount. Not a single student in the class had ever read the Sermon on the Mount. When she collected the essays, she found that they hated the sermon, that they thought it was the worst sermon ever. One student wrote in and said this, I do not feel like the sermon, I do not like the Sermon on the Mount. It disgusted me. It made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Another student wrote in, The things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman with lust is adultery? To be angry and insult someone is murder? Those are the most extreme, stupid, inhuman statements I've ever read. Well, Dr. Owens, after she got over the shock of reading these essays, she concluded this. She said, Finally, 
biblical illiteracy has come to the point where people in America are able to respond to Jesus Christ without filtering him through 2,000 years of cultural haze. In other words, she says, my students got it right. They were right. It was Jesus' intent to to startle us, to shock us, to, to show how high God's standards truly are, how far we must go, how high we must climb. And Jesus also wanted us to know that none of us can get there by ourselves in our own human flesh. So, I mean, get real. Read the sermon. You'll find how far you fall short. In fact, if you go to Sullivan's Island uh, this summer and everybody's in bikini mode and, and uh, you're out there, chances are, if you're living by this sermon, you may have to pluck your eyeball out. <laughs> if you've ever stolen something that's not yours, chances are you should be cutting a limb off. In other words, if we truly read the sermon and try and live it, We'll all come into church stumbling with limbs missing and body parts out and eye patches over the place where our eyeballs used to be. And look at verse 20. Jesus drills us down. He says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Exceeds. These are not bums. These guys are great. They studied the law. They they wanted to live every jot and tittle of the law. And Jesus saying, you've got to be better than these guys to go to heaven. My goodness, that's bad news. But it gets worse. Look, look at verse 48. Jesus has the gall to tell them, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard, my friends. No wonder those pagan students hated this sermon. Get it away from me. It exposes me. The bar is way too high. The ethics are unattainable in this sermon. They leave me naked before God, exposed in my sin and my shortcomings. So, is it the worst sermon, or is there a key to understanding the sermon? I want to give you the key, and the key is the Beatitudes. And I think that's why Jesus prefaces the sermon with those verses that Father John read this morning. It describes in the Beatitude not something that we, we do, but a people that we are becoming. In other words, um, it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. The Sermon on the Mount is. What about if the whole Sermon on the Mount was a gift to be received by God and not a hurdle to be jumped in our own flesh, trying harder? What if instead of hearing Jesus say, now you go and do these things, if we heard Jesus say, here is a picture of what a saved person's life begins to look like when they truly know me, a kingdom-shaped life. In other words, not prescriptive, but descriptive. You see, the word beatitude means happy are, or blessed are, or satisfied in God are these people. It's actually in the indicative mood. It's not imperative. You know, Jesus at the Last Supper uses the imperative, He breaks the bread and says, do this in remembrance of me. you got to do something. Do the Eucharist every Sunday. Celebrate it. Do this. He's not saying do these things. He says, blessed are. If you're a saved person, these things are naturally going to happen. He describes what Christian living looks like. In fact, you'll never understand the sermon unless you're a converted Christian. Those students didn't understand it, and they thought it was the worst thing ever. 
But once you're saved by grace through faith and filled with God's Holy Spirit, these things begin to make sense to you. But if you are not saved, the bar is always going to seem impossibly high. So the Beatitudes, they're about salvation and sanctification. They're a description of a Christian. Let's look at the description. Look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now that's the key. If you want to look at being a Christian, that's where it starts. It means being poor before God. You remember, you got to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. When I hear that, I look at my life and I look how spiritually poor I am before God. And that's where the Christian journey begins. It begins when we're forced to go on our knees to beg to God, we're so unworthy, so impoverished, so destitute. Lord, give me your grace and show me your mercy. So we come to God poor. In Jesus' day, especially if you're a woman and you've lost your husband or you've lost your son and you had no man in your life, you were desperately poor. Remember that story about the woman and the funeral? Jesus raises her son from the dead because he had compassion. Well, if you're a woman in that state, the only thing you could do is wake up in the morning and, and pray to God, Lord, please give me this day my daily bread. Feed me, Lord, or I'll die. I am totally dependent on you. And that's what being spiritually poor is all about in this chapter. You see, most non-Christians, we, we think about Judgment Day, and, and uh, those students probably thought in this way, that if there's a judgment, if there's a heaven, they're going to stand before God one day, and, and they're going to say, God, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I've done more good things than I've, I've done bad. In fact, compared to my husband, I'm a really good person. I've got some spiritual money in my bank account, in other words. Jesus is saying, no, you've got no spiritual money. You've got nothing to merit your salvation. You've got to come to me poor and begging for mercy. Paul says in Ephesians 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of your works so that no one can boast. You've got to come to me poor. And that old hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And if you come to God poor, the next thing you're going to do is you're going to mourn over the sin in your life. Look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What does that mean to mourn? That means if you're walking with God in spiritual poverty, uh, you begin to grieve those things that you've done to hurt God. You begin to be uh, repulsed by the, the hurt and pain you've inflicted on others. You, you began to, to realize the bitterness that you've sometimes embraced. And you're going to want to return to the Lord and turn away from those things. You're going to mourn over your sin. You know, people who are far from God, they don't mourn over sin. In fact, they're, they're very, uh, much, much, much of the time, they, they don't even recognize their dishonoring of God. It's just a little sex outside of marriage. Nobody's going to get hurt. Why, why? It's just a fling. My wife will never find out about that. You know, it's not stealing if you don't get caught. You know, Christians become intensely aware of the sin in their lives. And they seek after God's mercy and forgiveness. They repent over their transgressions. They're grieved by sin. And what's more, we begin to be grieved over the sin of others that we know who were lost we begin to mourn that they do not find themselves in Jesus. We begin to pray for them to be saved and come into the light. 
we grieve. And if we grieve over sin, we're comforted by salvation, that verse says. In verse 5, we find out what it looks like to be a Christian. The lordship of Jesus. Look at that. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, what does it mean to be meek? It doesn't mean to be weak. Remember, Jesus was the meekest man who ever walked the face of the earth. But he wasn't weak, was he? In fact, Jesus goes in the temple one day and finds some money changers, overturns their table, drives them out with a whip of cords. He wasn't weak. In fact, what he was is subordinate to the will of the Father. He sought God's heart in everything. He was angered over the things that angered God. He rejoiced over the things that rejoiced God's heart. Meekness is described as this, the bridling of a horse. In other words, to put your power and strength under God's control, to subordinate yourself under God's ultimate will. The ability to submit to God's will is the lordship of Jesus. That's what it's called. So that's a picture of what it means to be Christian. The meek will inherit the earth, Jesus says. You will stand with me on the last day as I come back to judge the living and the dead. And finally, the picture we get of Christians this morning, look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. When you become a Christian, you begin to hunger and thirst for more of God in your life. As the psalmist says in Psalm 42, he says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O Lord. Hunger and thirsting and panting for more of God. Let me ask you, if you are literally dying of hunger or thirst, would you go out and get a job and perhaps two weeks later get a paycheck and be able to buy a Dasani water to quench your thirst? Would you plant a garden out behind your house and maybe two months later gather up some produce to, to uh, actually eat? No. You would go to someone who has water, who has food. You would beg that person to give you food and to give you water to save you from your situation I think that's what Jesus means, hunger and thirsting for righteousness. Now, that's a strange word, isn't it? Righteousness. We know in our culture what self-righteousness means. I'm right and everybody else is wrong. We know that. We, if you grew up in the 80s or you're alive in the 80s, you know the Urban Dictionary form. Somebody would drive up in a really nice sports car and you'd say, dude, that is righteous. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about being reconciled with God being right with God again, so that we can walk with God in the cool of the day as our ancestors did before the fall, so that we can walk with the love of God throughout this life and into eternity, to be right with God. Well, what Jesus says is you got to be perfect to be right with God. Now, how do we get there? How is that possible? Well, you hunger and thirst for it. Paul says in Philippians 3, he says this, he said, I want to be found in Jesus. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes through following the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that depends on faith alone. So that's how we come. We come poor. We mourn for our sin. We hunger and thirst for righteousness, and we get what's called imputed righteousness, and it's a gift, not something you have to strive for. It's not a prescription of what you have to do. It's a description of what you can receive when you're in Christ. As, Jesus, as uh, Isaiah in 53, 11 prophesied. Now, this is written hundreds of years before Jesus. 
Isaiah didn't know he was talking about Jesus, but he was. And he said this, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. And by knowledge of him, by his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. So when the Father looks down, he's going to look at me, and when I go into heaven, he's going to say, there's Trip, the perfect one, and I just hope my wife is there to hear that. <laughs> we will be made perfect, righteous, by grace through faith. And what difference does that make in our lives? Well, here's the deal. If you acknowledge your spiritual poverty and beg for mercy, if you mourn over the sin in your life and cry out for God's comfort, if you submit yourself to the will of God and subordinate yourself under his lordship, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness that comes by faith alone, well, guess what? You're saved. You're welcomed into God's kingdom. And then something wonderful happens. You begin to be sanctified. God's Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. You become his temple. And you don't have to try and live the holy life. He begins to do the work for you. C.S. Lewis described that sanctification in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild the house. At first, perhaps you understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and, uh, and unstopping the leak or stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in ways that hurt abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. He's throwing up a new wing there. He's putting on an extra floor here. He's running up a tower. He's making a courtyard. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself, himself. That's when sanctification begins. And that's the key to understanding the sermon, isn't it? That when he comes into your heart, he takes the have-tos, the prescriptions, and makes them want-tos, the description. When the Holy Spirit comes, have-tos are out the door. Far from prescribing an ethical life, Jesus is describing what your life in the kingdom looks like. You're going to want to show mercy because God's shown you mercy. You're going to want to be a peacemaker because God has made peace with you and salvation. You're going to want to go into your closet and pray to your father in secret because you love him. You're going to want to give generously to the things of the church and the kingdom because where your treasure is, there your heart will be. You're going to begin to hate divorce. You're going to be repulsed by anger. You're going to flee from lust. You're going to want to be light in a darkened world. You're going to want to be salt, a preservative in a rotting culture. It's not a have to. It's not a prescription. It's a description. You don't have to try. He will do the work for you. When you're truly saved, you've become uh, this process of, of uh, transformation. You, you grow in grace. You grow in love and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. It's called sanctification. And if you understand the sermon through the lens of salvation and sanctification, it's not the worst sermon ever. In fact, it's the most beautiful sermon you've ever heard in your life. And in the end, we'll be paid perfect. Paul says, 
not in this life. We'll grow in grace in this life. But Paul says we'll undo the image of the man of dust, the image of Adam, and we'll become bearers of the image of Christ, the man of heaven. And when does that happen? Well, the last verse is 1 Corinthians 15, 52. Paul says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the last trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed into the glory of God. The sermon, it would repulse me if I didn't know salvation and sanctification. It repulse those students in that class. But for us, it's the greatest sermon ever because it describes the work of God in our hearts, in our lives, and in the church. To God be the glory who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.